I'm excited about this morning because I came up with an illustration that involves me eating chocolate. <laughs> How good is that? It may be the best illustration I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, I need an helper. Do you want help? All right, yeah. You can help me later on, Steve. All right, that's fine. There is a downside to it, but anyway, uh, as soon as you volunteered. Good lad. <laughs> I get chocolate. You get chocolate. Um, all right, we, have you got that first one up there, Josh, if it's not, my phone's not working. So we're going to keep talking about ambassadors, and I've not talked about it for a month, because I haven't talked for a month, but uh, we're going to get back to it, and we're going to talk about the power of invitation. And um, so ever since, uh, I guess, September time, I suppose, really, I've been launching from these words in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that are all about God reconciling us, really. They're about what God did, about how he reconciled us, about how he's put us together, brought us together, and how, because of that, he's given us the message and the ministry of reconciliation. And he uses this word ambassadors, and we've explored what that means, and uh, all that sort of stuff. Um, and what we've said is that we have a message and a ministry of reconciliation. That's what you've got. That's what you carry, whether you identify with it or not. The truth is you carry a message and a ministry of reconciliation. That's the heart of God. And uh, reconciliation simply means bringing people back together. It's about restoring people first to Jesus, and then to themselves, and then to those around us. So we could say this next one, Josh. It's about restoring people to their original design as lovers of Jesus, lovers of themselves, and lovers of those around them. And that really, I've said it before, but is what I think is really what Christianity is all about. It's about restoring people, firstly yourself, as a lover of Jesus, so you, you get that relationship, then a lover of yourself, which means you get restored to your past, you get restored to, you come to terms with your past and get healed of that, and then you, once you've learned to love yourself, Jesus said you can actually learn to love other people, hence why we are restored to restore because you can't actually restore anybody else until you are first restored. Because all you do is carry your pain and give it away. That's the reality. You can to an extent, but eventually it'll catch up with you. And I love the word reconcile. It, it, it means like, it can mean to restore friendly relationships between. Or to cause a change in the state of a relationship. So we've been given this message which restores a friendly relationship with God. And we have a ministry that causes a change in the state of the relationship between those around us and God. That is what you are. It's not something that you do. It's something that you, ex you are. It, it exists within you. You might not have come to terms with that yet, and you might not have started to live from that place yet, but the truth is you are an ambassador. And that is who you are. This is not something that you do. It's something that you actually are. And out of that identity, it flows automatically if you identify with that. But as I look back over my life, I realize I have not lived out my identity as an ambassador very well. I, uh, in my teens, I had no problem being an ambassador. I set up a brand new Christian union in my sixth form, put posters all around school, invited me on Christian friends, like, um, and, um, and they came, and they heard the gospel. I don't know that any of them at that time gave their life to Jesus, but I know that they, they heard the gospel from a number of different ways, in a number of different ways, and I know that they heard it. And, um, of course, it was terrifying, especially when those Christians in the school who said they'd come didn't turn up. That was particularly terrifying, um, especially when you're 17. I remember it clearly now. I was, it was the first, it was lower six, and I was sat in a carol service singing uh, the hymn that ends, What Can I Give Him, Give Him a Lamb? And I realized God spoke really clear to me at 17 and said, 
what can these people bring him because they don't know, bring me because they don't know me. And it was that moment when I went, oh, yes, Lord. And then I went, oh, no, Lord. Because I realized it meant I had to do something about it. And I, I knew that the deputy head uh, knew Jesus or knew a Jesus anyway. And um, anyways, that's a different story. But, but the point is, at 17, 18, I was like prepared to put my reputation on the line. I was prepared to tell everybody. And I invited people. And they came a number of times. And they still liked me, which surprised me at the time. And then at university, I was quite open about my faith. I didn't see anybody come to know Jesus either. Um, and I think over that time, I became disappointed. Uh, I became frustrated. Um, it felt like I couldn't do it. Like I didn't really know what I was doing and I couldn't do it. Even though I'd, it's not really about how you do it. It's just about the fact that I'd, and I'd, I'd, I lived in a different place, um, I suppose, in my own self, my own insecurities. Um, but I heard everywhere that this was something that you must do. You must tell people about Jesus. You must invite people. And of course, then I felt guilty because I didn't really want to. And so I was covered with this guilt. And so what happens when you're in that place is you either operate out of guilt, which is not what Jesus wants you to do at all, or you come up with a theology that assuages your guilt. So you come up with a theology that you listen out for one that makes you feel better. And the one I caught hold of, well, if you just like Jesus, then it'll all be all right and they'll just know about him. And I thought, that sounds like a great idea. No disappointment. Focus on being like Jesus. Excellent. Which is what I did for a long time. And of course, the, the theory goes, that theory goes, that because I'll be so amazingly different to everybody else around me, they will fall down at their feet in awe and ask who made me to be this incredible, awesome person that I am. And they'll work out that it's Jesus and invite him into their lives. Except nobody ever fell down on the feet in awe of the person that I was. And they didn't even know who Jesus was, so how could they work out it were him? It's just a complete nonsense, isn't it, really? When you, when you debunk it like that, you go, that's just utter nonsense. Um, but it felt good. So I took it, shelved the guilt, and carried on. Um, But then I saw some different things about Jesus. And I saw some different things about how people in the Bible operated. And I saw some different things about who I am in Christ. And I saw some different things about my identity as being an ambassador. But first of all, I want to ask you a question. Who, who, got, who here got brought up in like a Christian home? So church, Jesus has been like a normal part of life. Okay, okay, great. Who, uh, so the rest you didn't, so who of you who were not brought up in a Christian home came to know Jesus through God turning up and introducing himself to you all on his own or via an angelic visit or a dream? Okay, excellent. No, it happens, so it's fine. Yeah, okay. Okay. Did you understand everything through that moment? So when God just turned up, okay. Of the rest of you then, I presume somebody told you or invited you somewhere. Who, who got invited somewhere or told about him? Who actually got invited somewhere? Okay, there we go. Okay. And you two, who God turned up on the door, presumably somebody had to explain it to you. I, I remember uh, uh, Emma, actually, had this incredible encounter with Jesus, like, just in a bedroom, and like, but she had to come and go, what, what happened? And then we were able to go, well, that's Jesus who just showed himself to you. Because Joe had been praying for her for, for ages and talking to her, but, but he still needed somebody to explain to her what had happened. She just went, I don't know what that was, but it was good. I went, well, do you want more of it? Yeah. 
Okay, then, let's meet Jesus. Easiest thing ever, wasn't it? Just in that room right there. It was ace. The point is this. And even if you grew up in a Christian home, so I grew up in a Christian home. From the age of four, I went to Sunday school. But there's a couple called Paul and Nita Hallam who invited my mum and dad at church. And if it hadn't been for that couple, I wouldn't be here now. And my dad had known Jesus all his life. My mum had never known Jesus, but he'd, uh, he was in the Wesleyan Reformed Church and all sorts of stuff for my dad as a, as a uh, young man. And, um, but he'd kind of left it and got into work and got into all sorts of stuff, and I knew this couple, and they went, you know what, you should, you should come along. And then my grandma, as far as we know, never openly knew Jesus, said, oh, get kids to Sunday school, it'll be great. You'll get some time off. It did you good, they can go. <laughs> Honestly. And so, and they found out through Polonia, they were in Sunday school, they thought, Sunday afternoon, Sunday school, we get two hours to ourselves on a Sunday afternoon. Come on. <laughs> so we got shipped off to Sunday school, and out of all that, my whole, my uh, kind of close family came to know Jesus. My mum and dad went on to plant churches. I mean, but it were all because this one couple. And my grandma said, why don't you do this? Statistically, this is true. Next slide, Joshua. 6% of people who don't know Jesus are coming to a church, walking by, by their own initiative. So they walk past and walk in. So I know that Ian and Victoria, way back in the days in Victoria Hall, they heard the music and walked in. Victoria knew Jesus. Ian didn't. They both met. 3% like to... Pro- this, is, this is quite low for this church, I think. But 9% like the pastor. <laughs> Got to try, aren't you? 4% had a need met by the church, so maybe it was an outreach program, caps and that. 3% were attracted by Sunday school, and the rest, Josh, 75% are invited by a friend or a relative in terms of people coming. Now, that's a stat from America, but it's pretty similar. The point is that you can put on all the programs you want, do all the mums and toddler wants, all the cap things, all the outreach programs, and you'll miss three out of four people. Because actually... 75% of people who come to church and end up knowing Jesus were invited by somebody else, by a friend or a relative. And I think something like, in a similar service, something like over 70% of people were asked, if somebody invited you to go, would you go? They said yes. They said yes. But let's keep exploring this. Let's go to John chapter 1. I want to point out you some things, because I, I think, and I know, because I've, I've, all the stuff I'm teaching you about I used to think differently, but I've learned it, and God's taught me it. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following, asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you'll see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and, that, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. So this is the scenario. John, who's baptizing people and has got his own little branch of followers, he's down by the river having a little chat. Jesus walks on by. It seems that it wasn't obvious to, Jesus, to, to the disciples that Jesus was walking by. Because John has to point him out. It says, when John saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God which pretty much kills the theory that being like Jesus and not saying anything will cause people to ask questions because Jesus himself walked past and had to be pointed out. Do you get me? You see, this is the thing. Over the years in Little Daisies, we've had a few minor celebrities in. We've had some people off Coronation Street. We've had some people off um, 
Emmerdale. Uh, I think Gareth Gates has been in before as well, who used to be famous back in the days of Pop Idol or whatever. Uh, well, we've had somebody off Love Island in as well. So we've had a few minor celebrities in. Now, of course, I don't watch Love Island or any of those things, or Corey or whatever, so I ain't got a clue who they are. But one day I remembered it with Victoria, she came running, oh, guess who's in? I've got no idea, Victoria. Hey, so you're from Love Island. I'm like, and? I'm like, who from Love Island? Just over there, can't believe it. And uh, of course, I'm like, okay. She looks lovely. Yeah, she's the most dolled up one. Okay, I can see she might be on Love Island. I get that. Like, you know. And then, oh, and then somebody else, it was somebody who do not work for us anymore. They were so excited that somebody from Coronation or Emmerdale had been in. Honestly, they couldn't contain themselves. They were like, oh, there's somebody from Emmerdale. Oh, I can't make coffee. But the point is, I wouldn't know who they were. I didn't have a clue who they were, because I don't know them. Well, these two people, the two disciples, Andrew and his friend, they didn't recognize Jesus because they didn't know who he was. So, so John has to go, a bit like Victoria, going, oh, I sir from Love Island. All right, oh, right, you sir from Love Island. Fantastic, I'll go and do nothing. I mean, I don't, <laughs> like, but do you understand me? Like, I, because, because I don't recognize who she is, she's nobody to me. She can walk past and I have no idea. Absolutely no idea. And of course, but, but this is Jesus himself walks past and everything just carries on. Until John goes, oh look, there's the Son of God. Oh, oh, that's the Son of God. Oh, I didn't know, I would have never recognised him. No, well you wouldn't because you weren't looking for him. And you weren't aware of who he is or what he looks like. And of course in the same way, it doesn't matter how much Jesus shines out of you. If people don't know who he is, they won't recognise him. I, I can get a complete face mask and look like somebody from some minor celebrity. If you don't know who they are, you'll go, who are you? Who are you? Because you don't recognize them. You may well shine with all the goodness in the world, but it's a big step to seeing goodness and naming it Jesus, particularly when most people don't associate God and Jesus with much that's good. Why would you go, oh, you've got a beautiful heart, that must be Jesus? Well, you do that because you know Jesus is good. If you don't know Jesus ain't good, you're not going to make that connection. The whole process starts with John pointing out who Jesus is with words and actions. More than that, though, John is willing to lose something so others may gain a relationship with Jesus. They're his followers, his disciples. He just lost two of his buddies. They weren't going to go back to him. His group got smaller, so Jesus' group got bigger. Isn't it beautiful? We see that as a result of John pointing out Jesus, Andrew and another disciple follow him, and then they interact with him. And Jesus wants to know what they're looking for, and they basically reply saying they want to spend some time with him. That, when he says, what, what are you after? And they go, well, where are you staying? And it's like, can we come for a cup of tea, basically? We want to talk to you. We want to know more about you. We want to find out who you are. And of course, they, they, they spend the day together. So this first interaction starts with someone pointing Jesus out, and then it continues with an invitation to spend time with Jesus. And Jesus didn't just walk along expecting them to work it all out for themselves. He says they spent the whole day together. He spent time explaining things, revealing things, debating with them, conversing with them. And it's clear we did this because the next few verses read this. John 1 and verse 40 to 42. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. 
The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of Jonah, you'll be called Cephas. Do you see what it says? The first thing he did. Because when you fall in love with somebody, the first thing you want to do is tell the whole world. Isn't it? When you find somebody that you fall passionately in love with, the first thing you want to do is tell everybody how in love you are. And of course, what happens, because we fell in love with him a long time ago, we kind of get a bit like an old married couple with him who forget to tell everybody how much we love our wife or husband. Which shouldn't happen with married couples, and it shouldn't happen with Jesus, but it does. We fall into this kind of, ah, well, you know, be all right. But having had Jesus pointed out to him, Andrew invites his brother and brings him to Jesus. Notice that Andrew does not seem to go home and wait for Simon to comment on the holy glow that now surrounds Andrew because he's been with Jesus. He opens his mouth and he invites him. He speaks to him, tells him what he's found, enjoys his brother, enjoys, invites his brother to join the pie. Simon comes along and Jesus takes one look at him and gives a prophetic word over him. Oh, it's not very seeker sensitive, is it? Oh, prophetic words straight away. Well, yeah, why not? Why not? You see, one of, the, one of the things we worry about hugely, because our times together are a little unpredictable, especially when Paul's here. <laughs> Let's just say it as it is. Then, then we get a little bit worried. But this is the truth. This is the truth. I am not aware of anyone who does not know Jesus, who's come into our midst and has said they'll never come again. I'm aware of lots of Christians who said it. No, it's true, honestly, it's true. Because you either love it, we're a bit like Marmite. You either love it or you hate it. No, it's true. And Paul's definitely like Marmite. It tastes lovely. <laughs> but listen, this is the reality. We, we forget what happens in this place. Because you get used to it, you forget about the presence of God. You forget about the love of God. You forget about the peace of God because you experience it all the time. And you live in it. And it's a beautiful thing. And you come to expect it. But you forget that if you've never experienced the love of God or the peace of God, you forget how much it hits you. And nearly every single person who comes in here says, they might not be able to put the finger on it, but nearly every single person says... I don't know what that was, but it was just beautiful. Isn't it true? You two invited more than anybody, isn't it true? Yeah. It's true. Now, what happens when you invite Christians is they either love us or hate us. So there's, there's a few of them who don't like us, and there's a few of them who do. But that's all right, because that's fine, that's it. And, and of course, you know, we realize that we push buttons. That's kind of what we do. And that's okay. Of course, the reason God pushes buttons is because he wants us to change. That's why. But not everybody likes the buttons being pressed. Um, but the truth is, the truth is that we, we, mustn't, we mustn't put... And, and this is the other thing. Once, you, once you've been here a while, it's like any relationship. that You have a honeymoon period where everything's wonderful. And then you've been here a little while and you start to see things that are not quite right, as in any relationship. But I mean, trust me... You see them, I see them. It is as it is. It's not perfect. Hey, it's because we're human. So that's how it is. And we do our best to make it the best it can be. But it'll never be perfect, and it'll never be what you want, and it won't ever be trying to be what you want, because it's not about what you want. It's about what we're trying to do as a house, which means nobody will ever be truly happy. But that's all right. That's called being a family. That's how it is. 
But the point is, the point is that when you think about inviting people, you often think about all those little things that you don't like. And you forget that they won't see them. Because they'll be more concerned with the things they've never experienced before. Like the fact that people come and say hello to them. And people look like they might actually be friends with each other. And there's a real sense of the presence of God that they don't really understand and a sense of love in the place. That's what they see. Because they'll see the first things you saw when you came in, not the things you see now. And I'm just trying to debunk all the arguments we have about why we don't invite people that come to know Jesus. Simon, yeah. So, John 1, 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God. Nazareth? Get anything good from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching him, he said, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So this time with Philip, it's Jesus himself that does the finding and the inviting. But once again, there is an express invitation. You don't just walk past and expect him to drop everything and follow this person. He goes, hey, follow me. Oh, there's an invitation, expressed in words. Then when Philip realises who he's found, he immediately, it seems, goes and finds a friend called Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel is a fairly sceptical guy. He's not convinced at all that anything good can come out of Nazareth, yet alone the Messiah. So his first response is not, oh yeah, fantastic, it's, really? I don't think so. Nowhere. And he questions him. And I can imagine Nathaniel coming to Jesus not with excited anticipation, but absolute scepticism. Because people will come with all sorts of different thoughts. But as soon as he approaches Jesus, Jesus reaches out to him and tells him something. Again, he speaks a word in him. He says, ah, truly in his right, and there's no deceit. Nathaniel's like, what the chuck? How did you know that? But then he questions him again. So there's a whole, Nathaniel doesn't just follow. Nathaniel, like, he's got some questions. He's got to sort some things out. He's got to process some things. Because some people have lots of questions that are all valid. Other people are like, that's just ace. I'm off there. Because it's always different. He isn't going to accept Jesus as Messiah just because Jesus says so. Different people will come to Jesus in different ways. Some will have lots of questions. Others won't. Some will be very sceptical. Others will be more trusting. But no matter the person, if you read John 1, you see the truth that runs through each encounter is that none of those men, who all of course went on to be apostles, would have met Jesus unless somebody else either pointed him out or invited them to come and meet him. And Acts 2.32 says this, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. So this is uh, Peter speaking at Pentecost, he's giving a big preach and all these people get saved. And he's saying, look, God's raised Jesus to life and we are witnesses of the fact. Well, if we know and believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and we've experienced the evidence in our lives, then you and I must be witnesses of the resurrection. Are we not? I know we didn't see it with our physical eyes, but we've, we've understood it in our hearts. We know that he's been raised from the dead because we experience his life, don't we? We know it. And in simple terms, we know and we've seen that Jesus is alive. And of course, we are already witnesses of it. And I've spent, well, seven weeks now teaching you about your identity as an ambassador. I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in a couple of different, and verse 20. So the message translation says this. 
were Christ's representatives. God used us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. We're speaking for Christ himself. Now become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. We are ambassadors of the anointed one who carry the message of Christ to the world as though God were tenderly pleading with them directly through our lips. Not our actions, but through our lips. So we tenderly plead with you on Christ's behalf, turn back to God and be reconciled. And of course, it, that wasn't just for Paul. It, we, are, we, have a, a minute, we are ministers of reconciliation. He's chosen to make his appeal to the world through us. And that, that definition of ambassador, it can be, again, a servant who reconciles. It's somebody who causes a change in our relationship. And if you read through Acts, you see how this works after God sent the Holy Spirit. Because you see all these people coming to know Jesus. And there's three things that you see. First of all, they've spent time with Jesus and they know him. Well, you've spent time with Jesus and you know him. Have you not? They'd seen his death and more importantly, they knew he was alive. Well, you know that he's alive. But everybody around them does not know who Jesus really is. They think he's dead and they have no idea that he's alive. Well, everybody around you does not know who Jesus really is. They think he's dead and have no idea he's alive. So is there any difference whatsoever? You were full of the Holy Spirit. They were full of the Holy Spirit. There's no difference. We just believe there's a difference. And we create theologies that let us off the hook. That's what we do. There is nothing different. Have you got that one, Josh? There is nothing different in Acts than now. The only difference is that they understood if they didn't talk about Jesus, no one would know about him. If they didn't offer to pray with people, no one would experience him. That's the reality. And we can explain this by eating chocolate. Um, so, Steve, you can... It's your moment, mate. It's your moment. <laughs> you volunteered. You just stand there, my friend. And I'm going to come over here a little bit. So... Yeah, well, you have that first. Don't open it yet. So, um, many people, of course, appear to be happy and contented with life. They appear to be happy and contented with life. They may say they don't have many major problems and they're very blessed. But, of course, you don't miss what you don't know. And um, so, you can try a little bit of that delicious as the smart price chocolate. By the way, if anybody likes this stuff, I will pray deliverance later. Um, because clearly there's an issue if you like as a smart price chocolate. You see, just have a taste of that. It's delicious, mate. Look at that. You're a good liar. Um, if the only chocolate you've ever tasted is as the smart price, and you've never tasted anything different, then you would think chocolate was amazing and wonderful, wouldn't you? You'd go, actually, this is fantastic. But it's, it's all you've ever experienced. You would think the world of chocolate is fabulous. That's annoying me. As far as, as far as you were aware, there's no other chocolate out there because nobody's told you any other chocolate exists. So the supermarket that Steve's go to, it only has as the smart price on the shelves. And there's no advertising for any other chocolate in this make-believe world we're creating. There's just as the smart price. So Steve's enjoying his chocolate. He's going, this is beautiful. I'm enjoying it. This is the best chocolate ever. It's the only chocolate he knows, but he's enjoying it. Then imagine Steve has a friend down the road. It's just the best ever. It's just the best illustration ever. Steve has a friend down the road, mate, and goes to a different supermarket where they have dairy milk, which is the best chocolate in the world. Oh, just, just take a moment. 
Oh, just the best. Never too early, man. <laughs> Never too early. So, well, I'm just going to have to eat a little bit and enjoy it. Hang on out. <laughs> so, and, and because of our relationship, we don't really talk about the chocolate we have because well, we just don't bring it up about the sort of chocolate that we have. So I'm enjoying this beautiful chocolate, or whatever your favorite is, okay? I'm enjoying it. He's enjoying his chocolate. He has no idea this chocolate exists. So as far as he's concerned, this is the best chocolate in the world. Perhaps maybe I go around one night, and he offers me a bit of chocolate. Yeah, I do want some chocolate. Yeah, that's nice, that. It's really nice. Is it? Yeah, it's lovely. Let me have a little bit. This is the best illustration ever. So, I'll just have a little. I'm going to have a bit with you. Yeah, you'll be Oh, yeah. Now, because I'm British and polite, Mate, that is the best chocolate ever. I love it. That's really beautiful. Good. Oh, so nice. Yeah, that's delicious, that. <clears throat> and of course, I, I might think, well, I'm sure Steve loves it. Maybe he's bought it because he loves it. Maybe it's his favourite. I'm going to assume that that's what he likes. And I don't want to challenge his taste in chocolate because that would be rude of me, wouldn't it, to challenge his taste in chocolate. So I'm not going to say anything because actually he obviously likes that. He's happy with it. He's not complaining about it. He's happy, so I go home. But of course, none of that's true. Because he doesn't know any different. Of course, he's saying he likes it, but he's not had any opportunity to taste anything else. He's saying he enjoys it, but he's not had anything different to try. And my assumption that it's his favorite is only because he doesn't have any choice, that's all he knows. He doesn't know anything else. But then maybe one day he comes to my house. Come to my house. Oh my God. You can leave that crappy chocolate on. Mate, that, you, okay, well, we can have your chocolate if you want, mate, but I have this chocolate. All right. You want to try a bit of this chocolate? Yeah, go on, mate. Go on. It's just chocolate, mate, isn't it? Oh, wow. That's not just chocolate. I know. <laughs> you got any more? Yeah. Mate, I've got more. Yeah, go for it. Have some more, yeah. <laughs> But maybe, maybe when he tries my chocolate, he tastes and sees, Psalm 34 and verse 8, that the chocolate is good. But unless you have an opportunity to taste and see a whole new experience of chocolate, you'll be satisfied with the chocolate you currently have. Now, you can have it if you want. I'll, I'll give you mine. There you go. That's your reward. Thanks, mate. I'll share it with you. Too right, you will. Go on, get on. <laughs> I'll see you at end. All right, mate. Don't eat all before. Now, let me tell that story again, but swap the word chocolate for life. Okay? If the only life you've ever experienced is your current life, and you've never experienced anything different than that life, you would think the life you have is amazing and wonderful because it's all you have experienced. As far as you are aware, there is no other life out there because no one has told you anything else exists. Then imagine your friend lives down the road with a different sort of life, with the good news of Jesus. My friend doesn't really talk about the life they are living because why would they? As far as they know, it's the only kind. My friend is enjoying what they think is the only life out there. Maybe I go around one night and they talk about life and I listen, but I'm polite and British, so I don't point out there is a way better life available because that would be rude. And anyway, I assume they prefer the life they currently have. But of course, none of that is true. They have never had the opportunity to try another way of life because no one has shared it with them. Maybe one day they come and I share about my life. 
At first, they may well think they don't need it because, hey, life's life, isn't it? But then maybe my friend decides that they'll try my life and they realize all along they've been enjoying a cheap imitation of life because I've shared it and now they can taste and see that the life is good. But until you have opportunity to taste and see, you'll be satisfied with the life you currently have. Until an ambassador of Jesus comes along, until somebody who understands their God-given identity and shares it with you, you don't have a choice. You didn't have a choice. You knew nothing until somebody came and shared it with you. We are surrounded by people whose quality of life is like eating Asda Smart Price chocolate and we have Cadbury's in our pocket. Josh, last slide. We carry life and life to the full and yet we are surrounded by those who don't know life to the full and unless somebody shares it with them, they'll never know life to the full. Put simply, if you know Jesus, you have the very best form of life there is. You carry around love, peace, joy, goodness, kindness, grace, mercy, and all the things, you reasons you said that you loved him earlier on. But of course, many other people do not have those things, and it's not because they don't want them. It's not because they're happy with their current life. It's not because they don't want to know more. We assume that everybody doesn't want to know about the best thing that's ever happened to us, which is a bit bonkers, isn't it? When you found out, did you not? Did you want to know? Well, eventually you did, because you're here now. You must have done. For the vast majority of people, they don't have those things, not because they don't want them, but because no one has offered them to them. No one has given them the chance to taste and see that the Lord is good. And again, this, remember, this is who you are. It's on the inside of you. You're built for it and you've got everything you need. And, and, and we have a huge opportunity to use the power of invitation to these Christmas events. Because it's much easier to invite somebody to a Christmas event because there isn't another one until next year. No, really. Like if they come on a Sunday, they might well ask them to come back next Sunday, then they might have to say no. But at Christmas, it's a one-off thing. And it's Christmas. It's like the easiest thing ever to invite somebody to. And I realise there are all sorts of fears that we have about inviting people, but they are just that, fears. And where do they come from? They don't come from Jesus. And the truth is that as far as I'm aware, well, no, we've said that. As far as I'm aware, no one who was yet to meet Jesus has ever come to anything we've done and hated it. But, but what we do is we project our own fears onto other people. But those fears, because they are fears, are unfounded. And I just... I just want you to think about, you know, there are, we beat ourselves up and put all sorts of stuff, but I've just decided, ah, sack it, I'm just going to go for it. Why not? Yeah. They've got everything to do again, and I've got nothing to lose. Yeah. That's the reality. They've got everything again, and I've got nothing to lose. What's worse could have happened? Luke will never talk to me again. Well... There we go. They're lost, isn't it? Well, at least I'll have known that I've invited them. And of course, does that mean they'll come? Nah. Jesus told a parable in Luke 14. He prepared a big feast. He invited loads of people. None of them turned up. So what did Jesus do? He went, we'll go find somebody who will come then. That's effectively the parable. Go find somebody who will come because the feast's still going to happen. If those people don't want to come, well, invite somebody else. Joe was telling me a story. 
of a double glazing salesman. I think he knocked on your dad's, dad's door, didn't he? Double glazing salesman. So he was going around door to door selling windows. And uh, Joe's, dad being, Joe's dad got talking to him and telling him about Jesus. And um, this double glazing salesman told him that he knows he has to knock on 200 doors to get one sale. And he's prepared to do that for his job. He's prepared to knock on 200 doors just to sell double glazing. I thought, wow. That says something about his commitment to double glazing, doesn't it? Might say something about our commitment to sharing Jesus as well. But there we go. But remember, this is not something you do. It's something you are. And, and, you know, we worry about, you know, nowadays you can go to a million and one seminars about doing this and doing that. Listen, all they had in the Acts were the Holy Spirit. They made it up as they went along with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That were it. They didn't have techniques to this and techniques to that. They just went, God help me, and talked to somebody. And thousands of people came to know Jesus. So forget all that I can't do this, and I'm not equipped, and I can't do that, and I ain't got the answer to this. And just go, hey, sack it, let's just go for it. Because honestly, when you do that, incredible things happen. And even when you think it's gone completely crashed and burned, it doesn't really matter. Because often the ones that crash and burn are the ones that actually turn around and be something amazing. So I want to encourage you. I want you to think about what might it mean for you to be an ambassador. We had a word on the Wednesday morning prayer meeting that was, it was like God wanted us to just say what we saw. And immediately, I saw myself looking out at tons of people that I didn't know and telling them about Jesus. That was the first thing that came into my mind. Sorry, it wasn't about you. And it wasn't about your problems or your issues. That wasn't the first thing that came to my mind. And it wasn't my problems or my issues. It was that there's a ton of people who are suffering on Asda Smart Press chocolate. And I'm enjoying Cadbury's. Shall we pray? Let's stand together. Let's just take a moment. Father, first of all, I refuse guilt and condemnation that comes from the enemy. It don't come from you, Father. We refuse it. We thank you for your love, Lord, and we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you do not operate in those places of guilt and condemnation. You operate in love and grace. And we thank you for that, Jesus. We thank you for who you made us to be, Father, your ambassadors, Lord. And we thank you that we carry everything we need to share your message of reconciliation, Jesus. And Lord, we are sorry when we have uh, created theologies to make ourselves feel better, when we have done all sorts of things to persuade ourselves that it's all okay. But Lord, we just, we're so thankful as we've been today, Lord, for that incredible life that you give us. And Lord, we just want to be better at sharing it, Father. We want to be bolder at inviting, Father. We want to talk about Jesus, not church, Father, but we want to talk about Jesus, Lord. We want to talk about you, Jesus, and what you did for us, Father, not about church and its meetings and its programs, but about Jesus. And Father, we're asking that you would help us talk about Jesus, Father. We're asking, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, just just invite, Father. And Lord, we wouldn't wouldn't wait for the very best moment, Father, because there'll never be a very best moment, but there'll be a moment because you're in it, because you're there and you're present in us, in them, therefore it's already a divine moment, Lord. And we're asking, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. In fact, right now, just if you, if you want 
to just receive everything God's got for you, to, to kind of, I don't know, embolden you or whatever. Just, just reach your hands up. And Father, I am asking, Lord, for those of us that want, want more, Father, of your Holy Spirit, Father, we receive it now in the name of Jesus. We ask you, Lord, to baptize us in whole new ways, Father, with new boldness, Father, and new abilities, Father. Prophetic words for people that we don't know, Father, dreams for people that we've never met, Father, or people we have met, Father, abilities to speak in, in all sorts of ways, Father. Lord, we're asking, Father, for an exciting time in these next few weeks and months, Father. An exciting time, Jesus. And once again, Lord, we rebuke, Father. We rebuke and tell to clear off any guilt, Father, or condemnation. We thank you that you've forgiven us. Anytime we got it wrong, you've forgiven us, Lord, and we, we stand in your forgiveness. But we thank you, Lord, for your love and your anointing. And we receive it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, you can be seated.